Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. Friends, we are still in a worship series called One Hell of a Week, where we've stretched out all the events of the last week of Jesus's earthly ministry over several Sundays. So a couple Sundays ago, we were in that um, Palm Parade uh, leading into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And then last week, we pretended it was Monday and Tuesday, where Jesus is, is picking a fight with the powers that be in Jerusalem. And tonight, we have arrived at solidly midweek, Wednesday, Thursday, and two uh, sequential dinners with friends. Like last week, we're going to read a lot of narrative text tonight. We're going to do the first half of Mark chapter 14 now uh, and the second half in a minute. For this first part, uh, you'll be a Greek chorus sort of responding to the action, the words you're saying are not actually in the text, and so they'll be printed in brackets, and you'll know that you're just, it's a little bit of commentary on what's being read. Here we go, Mark chapter 14. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him, for they said, Not during the festival, or there may be a riot among the people. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment of nard, and she broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. But some were there who said to one another in anger, why was the ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you. You can show kindness to them whenever you wish, but you'll not always have me. She's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were greatly pleased and promised to give him money. So he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the owner of that house, 
The teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So the disciples set out and went to the city and found everything as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover meal. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and when they had taken their places and were eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him one after another, Surely not I. He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who's dipping bread into the bowl with me. For the Son of Humanity goes as it is written of him, but woe to that one by whom the Son of Humanity is betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. While they were eating, he took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and all of them drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the reign of God. When they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all become deserters, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though all become deserters, I will not. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this day, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said vehemently, even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of them said the same. Thanks be to God. Continuing in Mark chapter 14. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. He came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake one hour? Keep awake. Pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And once more he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to say to him. He came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Ugh, enough. The hour has come. The Son of Humanity is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. You see, my betrayer is at hand. 
Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. And with him there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. So when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid hands on him and arrested him. But one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? (laughs) Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you didn't arrest me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. All of them deserted him and fled. A certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes were assembled. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards, warming himself at the fire. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none, for many gave false testimony against him, and their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. But even on this point, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you? But he was silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Humanity seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? All of them condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, to strike him, saying, Prophesy! The guards also took him over and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, One of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she stared at him and said, "Mm, You also were with Jesus, that man from Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I do not know or understand what you were talking about. And he went out into the forecourt. Then the cock crowed, and the servant girl, on seeing him, began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. Then after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to curse, and he swore an oath, I do not know this man you are talking about. At that moment, the cock crowed for the second time. Then Peter remembered that Jesus had said to him, Before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times, and he broke down 
and wept. This, too, is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. A meditation on nightmares and nudity from Mark 14. Do you ever have that dream where you show up where you're supposed to be to do the thing you're supposed to do only to realize that you're missing some critical piece of clothing, maybe several? You're topless or bottomless, whichever half means the most to you. Body parts that are almost always covered suddenly on display in such a way that they cannot be ignored. And in that dream, there's nowhere to hide. There's no pulpit to crouch behind, just this flimsy music stand that conceals nothing. But everybody's waiting, and you want to believe that it's going to be okay, that this is a safe space, and everybody here is committed to giving you the benefit of the doubt. But you can't find the gosh dang t-shirt rack. Don't we keep t-shirts here for just this reason? You want to ask somebody, but you fear drawing more attention to your half-naked self? And while you're looking for it, people keep asking you for stuff. Where are the lighters? Do we have any more grape juice? Can you show me how to work this thermostat? Have you seen Steph? Are you ready for your sound check? Did you print the worship order? Is the sermon going to be long because the cowboys are playing tonight? Do you ever have that dream? Just me? Okay, I'm guessing you know the nightmare with different details for sure, but that same feeling... They say most all of us share that subconscious fear, the the fear of exposure, the sudden revelation that you're something of an imposter, that the real you is buried several layers deep for safekeeping, and that if anybody could see who you really are, they might still love you, but they might not. It's a risk of nightmarish proportions, one you might not feel you can afford to take in your waking life by the light of day. So what if we read Mark 14 as a long dream sequence, a nightmare sequence, rather, where Jesus' sleepy sidekicks are repeatedly stripped naked, showing up pantsless in scene after scene, bare-assed and blushing, exposed for who they've been all along. Like, that Wednesday night supper at Simon the leper's Bethany house, where an uninvited woman whose name nobody bothered to catch crashes the party to give Jesus an extravagant gift. She breaks an expensive flask of richly perfumed salve to massage into his scalp and hair, a generous and intimate gesture that pays loving attention to his full humanity, his embodiment, the very head that will soon be slapped and striped, onto which a crown of cruel thorns will soon be shoved. The scalp massage is a sensual gesture for sure, but perhaps more maternal than I used to imagine when the Jesus in my mind's eye was white. Wear clean underwear in case you get hit by a bus, our mothers told us, the idea being that we'd be treated better in a crisis if we looked well cared for, like somebody loved us enough to keep us clean. The Jesus I now see, dark-skinned with kinky hair, may be in big trouble, but he'll show up in court by God with his curls well-nourished and sweet-smelling. But those at dinner with him that night, the friends he had eaten every meal with for all that time, well, they, they just can't see it. They're too busy calculating. It's a waste, they say. It costs too much. We should have sold it and shared with the poor. They deride the woman for her lack of discernment. 
<laughs> and that's when Jesus pantses them, one and all. Leave her alone, he says. And then, let's be serious. You don't really mean to alleviate poverty with her gift. You've had plenty of chances at that, and you'll have plenty more. I'm thinking your real problem is with her. She thought to do what you didn't. And now you've been one-upped by a woman. And isn't that what really burns your cookies, boys? Now shut up and let me have this moment. It's the last one I'm going to get for a while. He closes his eyes, relaxes into the woman's hands. His friends fade into the darkness until tomorrow. By the light of Thursday morning, they're ready to try again. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Happy Holy Days, and they need somewhere to begin their Passover celebration. How can we help, Jesus, they ask. And with a little bit of instruction and a little bit of audacious expectation that the kindness of strangers will come through again, as it did last Sunday when they needed to borrow a colt for his palm parade pageantry, they find a place that'll do just fine. Pretty soon, it's supper time again, and all the familiar smells and tastes and sounds combine in a jumble of joy, clinking cups, passing bowls, talking with their mouths full, licking their fingers, remembering their ancestors enslaved in Egypt, liberated by the mighty hand and outstretched arm of God, raising a glass to someday when God will liberate them again, get them out from under Rome's muddy boot. At some point during the meal, Jesus sobers everybody up with a somber request that in days to come, they remember him, meaning he soon won't be with them this way, sharing food and drink and travels and triumph. They should remember him just like this, he says, at table with his beloveds, eating ordinary food, drinking ordinary drink, the bread and wine that were staples of every supper in that ancient culture. It's a lovely memory that we love remembering every Sunday of the world. But the way Mark's nightmare unfolds, the establishment of the ritual is bookended on either side by a duet of devastating exposures. First, Jesus says, someone at this very table sharing these very dishes will be the one who turns him into the authorities setting in motion the chain of events that will lead to his demise in short order. They argue, he insists, the meal goes on. Then the middle piece of this literary inclusio, the peanut butter in this storytelling sandwich, take, eat, this is my body, take, drink, this is my blood. And then on the way to the garden where he'll spend the night in prayer while everybody else sleeps off the meal, the second secret is revealed. He says, you know you're all going to leave me. I can feel it. They protest. He pushes back. Peter can't stand it. Jesus says, just wait. And the overall effect with the prototypical Lord's Supper squeezed between the two revelations of betrayal and denial is the realization that even if we remain completely covered, carefully concealing our naughty nooks and crannies, he sees through the layers. He knows exactly who we are. Have you ever felt it when you came to the table to receive the bread and 
dip it in that cup? Even in the dim light of the big red barn where your rational mind knows that no one is watching you. Maybe even in the privacy of your living room as you nibble and sip all by yourself, other people's presence reduced to the quirky menu of suddenly sacred snacks that scroll by in the chat stream. I'm asking, have you ever felt it in the meal that we share together every week that you are exposed here? That even if the other human beings here with you don't know the little lies you've told or how stingy you've been or how vain you really are or how you're coming apart inside even while you keep it together for appearances sake that even if you've done an outstanding job of keeping all that stuff on the down low there is enough potential for exposure at the table of our lord that you're not even sure you should show up not even sure you can show up One time, a long, long time ago, as part of a reflection station, we wound yards and yards and yards of bright yellow caution tape around the communion table like it was a crime scene all marked off so that you couldn't get to the bread and cup without ducking under the tape or climbing over the tape like you were approaching the scene of a murder and you weren't authorized to be there. It was a way to externalize the implicit warning that Mark is sending here, that indeed all are welcome at the table of our Lord, but are you prepared to let him see who you really are when he offers to share himself with you? Mark's 14th chapter just goes on and on. Like a nightmare you startle awake from, only to fall right back asleep and pick up right where you left off. In the garden, Jesus pleads for companionship through the longest night of his life, but their heads are cloudy from too much wine and, frankly, too little regard for his distress. Not only can't they stay awake, they are exposed as thick and uncaring as thick and uncaring as they ever were before he called them into this new life by his side. The VRPs and their weaponized militia come to make a citizen's arrest, and Jesus' own posse can only muster one swipe with a sword, a badly aimed lunge at an enslaved person who's probably only there under orders of his owner, a move that impresses no one, least of all Jesus, and yields no advantage for the good guys. They're doubly exposed as people who revert to violence when they're scared and as being really bad at it. Dude, if you're going to fight, at least strike a blow that matters. It may not be a Christian pacifist ethic exactly, but even a Christian pacifist can recognize what a sorry swing it was. Anyway, that's when they run. All of them. All of them. It's perhaps the saddest sentence in the whole gospel. All of them deserted him and fled. What Jesus has known all along, now we know as well. Closeness to him, long-term cooperation with his project, does not negate our capacity for fear and flight. When things get hard, when being close to him turns from safe space and sharing supper to risking our own necks for his sake, 
we are exposed. We run, we hide, we cover our privates the best we can. We try hard to disappear. Mark's gospel is compact. It's much shorter than the others. It's almost certainly older than the others, a source material for Matthew's and Luke's narrations. And as such, Mark's gospel contains almost nothing that the other gospels do not. A notable exception comes here in the Gethsemane Garden when Mark reports, a certain young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen cloth they caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. That certain young man is not one of the regulars in Jesus' entourage, and the fact that he's temporarily dressed in bed sheets rather than actual clothes suggests that he sneaked out of his house in the late night to follow Jesus and his friends to the garden. His identity is a mystery but scholars have made a good argument that he is our narrator, Mark himself. At that time, the curious adolescent son of the homeowner who hosted Jesus and company for Passover that evening. The Jerusalem home of a family with a son named Mark, a family that regularly hosts Jesus' friends, will show up in the stories of the nascent church in years to come. See Acts 12 if you're interested in following that thread. Whoever it is, he'd rather run home naked, his sheet toga left behind, than risk being returned to his parents by the VRP's goon squad. It's that certain young man who turns everything I've said so far tonight upside down. It's like Mark has sent us a coded message with his own butt-naked self streaking through the streets of Jerusalem as the key. Because if chapter 14 is indeed a nightmare of exposure, the nakedness of our own self-interest on display for all to see, Mark is willing to embarrass himself to show us what we might have missed otherwise. That it's not Jesus left holding the bedsheets. It's the guys who came to get him who pulled it away. It's not Jesus who strips away our protective covering, exposing and shaming us in our frailty, our faults. It's the brokenness of the world we inhabit that does that. Jesus is a witness to our nightmare, but he is not the monster we're running from. It's the arresting party that grabs for young Mark and catches only the bedclothes so that he has to run home naked. See, it's the corrupt religious hierarchy that endangers Jesus such that his friends are reasonably afraid for their own lives and thus exposed as being reasonably afraid of religious hierarchy. Perhaps some of you concur with their judgment that being afraid of religious hierarchy is a perfectly rational fear and sometimes running away is the perfectly rational thing to do. It's the myth of redemptive violence told and retold in almost every story, even and especially Bible stories, that exposes our own willingness to strike with an angry fist when we feel afraid. I mean, why do you even carry a sword? Because the world is violent. 
And deep down you believe that violence might be the thing that saves you. It's the learning over a lifetime of interpersonal disappointments that makes it impossible to believe that anyone is going to have your back or that anyone is worth risking your own neck for because you've been down that road before, the road of trusting that if you stick your neck out, you won't be left alone and you already know how much that can cost you. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, (laughs) well, you won't be fooled again. If someone asks if you knew him, say, nah, nah. If you can't be sure it's safe to say yes. It's the lie that you're fed from your childhood that money is a true measure of value, that it solves more problems than it creates, that having more of it is better and getting more of it is a worthwhile life quest, a myth that exposes your hunger for security and your thirst to be judged as deserving by a system that doesn't actually care about you at all. If you've ever sacrificed your integrity for a paycheck, Your secret is not safe here. It's the lesson of a thousand petty power struggles that makes you fight for every scrap of authority, of of seniority, and resentful as hell of anybody who threatens that little territory you've carved out for yourself because you've tried sharing, you've tried assuming good intentions, and you've been burned badly. So when she makes her little show of compassion, you can't help but be cynical. Take it elsewhere, sister, you sneer, and you see your hardened heart is exposed. We are all of us exposed. Exposed. By the way this broken world lurches and limps through its orbit, throwing you off balance so often and so hard that your own stride is more of a defensive march, shields up, wary of any vulnerability, terrified of being caught naked, so terrified you have nightmares about it. Mark says, a certain young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. They caught hold of him. They did. The ones in service of the powers that be. The ones who believed that even Jesus was rotten to the core. The ones who frankly didn't care if he was or if he wasn't. Only that he disturbed their uneasy but precious peace with the broken, bullying world. A peace they would sacrifice any amount of integrity to keep. Jesus' friends were not the only ones caught with their pants down that night. His enemies were equally exposed by the realpolitik, the reality of the way the world works or doesn't at least not the way God intended. Beloveds, this is the point in the sermon at which I would like to gesture toward Jesus, swaddling his friends in kindness, strengthening them and us to stand strong against the powers, wrapping their vulnerabilities in compassion, so that we can be unafraid and unashamed of our own faults and frailties. But but this is Mark 14. But it is late on Thursday night, the longest night of his life. And it's just not our turn to be protected and made to feel better. 
At this moment in our narrative, he is himself quite vulnerable. He himself seeks comfort, and he's not surprised that we are rarely capable of giving it. On this night, he goes it alone, voicing his fears to the heavens in prayer. As hopeful as any prayer ever was that somebody out there is listening. It's going to be a few days before he knows for sure. So maybe church for tonight, maybe it's enough that we join him there. That we witness him faithfully praying through his own vulnerability, anticipating his own exposure. We won't flee, not tonight. And that, that will be enough. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.